Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Welcome to Faith in Your Recovery. It's another great day to find the way to move forward, to continue to seek out that recovery you've longed for. We're going to give you some help in that. We don't have all the answers. We don't even know all the questions. But before we're done, we hope we can shine enough light that you'll be able to see the next best step. We know for a fact that just when, you know, Life seems to be at its worst. God shows up at his best. And we'll be sharing that with you as we go hear our guest today, Scott Bronner. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Randy. Hey, Scott, it's good to have you. Thanks for joining us, taking the time out of your day. We want to hear about your life. Let's go ahead and jump into that and go ahead and tell the folks where you're at now, what's going on, some of your hobbies, your likes, what how do you choose to use your time when you have free time? When I have free time. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, I like, uh, I'm a big student of the entertainment industry as in acting, studying uh, the techniques of acting and appreciating some of the artists. I have my own podcast as well. Uh, it's called You're Not Alone. I do a lot of time, spend a lot of time rather interviewing people in the recovery and putting video over that, uploading it. And I go to a lot of recovery meetings and I'm also co-managing a recovery house here in town. It's called Bethel House. That's here in Anderson. Here in right? Anderson, Bethel House. It's on uh, it's 117 East 10th Street. Okay. Okay. And it's a recovery house for men. Yeah. Basically, it's uh, men who uh, are in a transition in their life. Their struggles with alcohol, drugs, any kind of compulsion. Maybe they're out of jail and prison, and they just need that chance. We bring them in. Keep them accountable, and we're a faith-based 12-step recovery program. Awesome, awesome. I like the sounds of all of that. Tell the folks how they can find your podcast. Tell them where they can get it. Thanks, yeah. I have a a platform on YouTube. I have one on Rumble and on BitChute, Spotify, Anchor, and it just goes under uh, You're Not Alone. You're Not Alone. Yes, Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, folks. Make sure you check that out when you get a chance. Scott, let's go back to early in life. Tell us about young Scott, who he was, what he was like, what your upbringing uh, was about. Sure. Um, I was raised up outside of the small community of Gaston, Indiana. We uh, lived out and away. I didn't have a neighborhood, but I had lots of woods and fields and wide open skies and plenty of time to do whatever. Learned a lot about uh, gardening and farming and hunting and fishing and navigating through the woods at night, some survival skills. My father was a big time outdoorsman and he was also uh, a former scout master of the Boy Scouts and he passed a lot of knowledge on to me. So you had a lot of great experiences there in the country. Absolutely. Country boy, born and bred. Or just a lot of space to roam. Yes. yes. Wide open skies, clean air, privacy. I mean, it was a really, really great place to grow up in. Yeah. As we were discussing earlier, I know that Gaston area. I grew up not far from there and spent some time in that metropolis. That metropolis. Okay? 
<laughs> I'm a true blue Gastonian, yeah. Yes, an old bulldog, as I recall, yes, as far as the nickname before it became the Westdale Warriors. I think that might be true. I know we were the Warriors, but the precursor to that, I'm not really familiar with. Yes, but. yes. It was the Gascon Bulldogs That's along right. with the Harrison Cardinals. There you go. Yeah, there you go. came together for Westdale. Yeah, that memory file just came to the front, All so right. you're absolutely correct. All right, we'll smack it up there again after a bit, okay? <laughs> go ahead and tell us then about your school days. Okay. I'd like to kind of go with uh, you know, the high school days, Okay, I guess. Okay. For my own reasons and my own decisions, I'm accountable for the fact that I had a heart and mind full of rebellion and resentment. Uh, I was predominantly bored and restless. I didn't appreciate the community I was living in. I felt like I just did not fit in. So with that rebellious spirit, it was reflective of the music I was listening to, the entertainment I would watch, uh, the comedy I would listen to and enjoy. And I really rebelled against that community and pretty much the standard of community. I grew my hair out long. I'd wear some pretty outlandish clothes. I didn't want a four by four. I wanted a sports car. So I got a job and got myself a sports car. And I knew better than everybody else around me, including my authority figures and the teachers and everybody else. And unfortunately, I also uh, ran with the attitudes of my pop culture heroes and a lot of my peers. And after I got my driver's license, I discovered how to party. Uh-huh. Scott, who were some of those heroes? In the music world, I, I mean, the more outlandish, the more hardcore and rebellious, the better in my, my view. Okay. I still am a huge fan of the band Motley Crue, uh-huh. Ozzy Osbourne, The Doors, especially Jim Morrison, Led Zeppelin. Let me think here. There's a cultural study right there. Right there. Those at the top of your list. Right. right? I, I love the guitar playing of Eddie Van Halen and Joe Satriani and Jimmy Page. Basically, they were a huge name, and it appealed to me. I was all about it. And the comedy I liked, uh, top of that list was Sam Kinison. Okay. George Carlin. You know, Richard Pryor. <laughs> Boy, bring back some names right. I haven't thought of in a while. Right. I mean, if they could make me laugh, shock me, and get me to think, I was all about it. They were into the shock jokes they for were. sure. They were. And that's some, some for some reason, the shock always kind of snapped my attention to the front. Like, whoa, you know, I can't believe this guy said that or he's talking about this. So you went ahead and told us just a moment ago that was a great part of the influence on your life. How did that play out, their influence? We're not pointing a finger at them. Right. That was your choosing by all means, but it shows where you were. Tell us how that worked. Okay. It was my own choice, my own accountability. They were just doing the jobs they had at their time. And again, I'm not placing blame on any artist. I got to looking at these individuals and I thought, wow, look at them. I mean, they're doing what they love. They're making stacks of money. They've got the movie deals. They've got the arenas sold out. Their albums fly off the shelves. Of course, they've got the cars. They've got the women. They got the drugs. They got the people taking care of them. I want a piece of that. I want that. That looks very, very appealing to me. On the surface, it would to about anybody, okay? Sure, on the uh, outside looking in. struggle that went with that. No. So go on with that, please. Sure, absolutely. Now, of course, I didn't get noticed or the breaks or anything like that in whatever, you know, theater, entertainment, or radio I was doing at the time. But uh, I just saw how they were and how they looked and what they had and where they were going is very appealing to me. I, In my mind, my young mind, I thought... These folks can do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and that's freedom. That's what I want. Money, 
prestige, power, freedom. Okay. I don't want to jump too far ahead of the game, but did you ever reach that point of the nirvana you saw them living in? Not even close. Not even close. Did it take you down a darker path than you thought it was going to in the beginning? As I got older, yeah. I mean, I had really put a lot of my mind, body, soul, and spirit and efforts to pursue that. And then as I got older, things began to change with the internet, with platforms and streaming. And I just came to a realization that Hollywood was never going to look at me. And I'm getting older and it's just not going to happen. And this really dark depression came over me. It's like... This isn't going to happen, but you got to earn some money somehow. What else are you going to do? You hate everything else as far as a job's concerned. Now you're stuck. So how did that depression work? Where did that lead you? How did you deal with that? I didn't deal at all. I started just doing what I had to do, like earning a paycheck or however I could just earn it uh, with legitimate work. And in recovery, we have this term, I got all up inside my own head. I was stuck in my head. That fostered a brand new set of resentments. Just a very, very poor outlook on life because I didn't get what I thought I deserved. And that's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. You said there once you got into recovery, you were able to look back and see that. Tell us about the road that that led you to the need for recovery. Okay. My rock bottom, it didn't happen all at once. It was strung out over probably two decades. I was able to be a casual user, a casual drinker and get away with it and not touch it for a long, long time. Eventually, um, when I started realizing that I wasn't living life on life's own terms and I wasn't able to cope or accept my reality, this bitterness set in. And when things in life that would happen that did not go my way, that I had assumptions of, I couldn't let that go or deal with it. So I chose not to deal with it and instead to self-medicate by any means possible to feel different. And that was my excuse is I just want to feel different. Life is terrible. I feel terrible. Everything's terrible. It's everyone else's fault. I deserve to feel different. So you said you were a casual drinker, a casual user. What was it that you used, Scott? I enjoyed whiskey and I enjoyed beer and and I like to pair up wines with meals. So I thought that was kind of classy, but I just enjoyed doing that. But I was smoking marijuana on the daily and I sought and wanted anything and everything that would calm me down, slow me down, give me some peace of mind and relaxation. So I uh, really started in on the, um, the opioid drugs and the benzodiazepine. And I always thought I was smarter than everybody else. I wasn't going to the street. If it came from the pharmacy (laughs) or a distillery or was grown from the earth, it was perfectly okay. I've heard that more than once, and I right. bet you have. I have. Certainly. How big a part of your life was that? Were you an everyday user at that time? Had you moved beyond the casual to a greater steadiness of use? I did, and it was it was gradual. And we're from being now uh, the, quote, weekend warrior, unquote, to I'm going to wake and bake with the marijuana every morning. And then, like, uh, after lunch, I'm justified in taking the edge off my day with some pills, some benzos to relax me. And and then to celebrate the end of the day, it was uh, some pain pills, a six pack of beer, some more grass. Then it just became my life. How long was that your habit? Over what period of time? Uh, I'm going to say 20 years worth. So what age range was that approximately, uh, Scott? From what age to what? It was approximately age 30 to about age 49, so that's over, Okay, my, my guesstimation, but it was a large 
part of the latter part of my life. Yeah, yeah. What was life like for you during that time? The darkness, the struggles, uh, were you able to accomplish anything positive, relationships? Share that with us, please. I destroyed far more than I ever gained during that time. Got a divorce, lost my marriage, and with that came the finances, the home. I was estranged from my daughter, my only daughter. Couldn't hold a relationship family-wise at all. Everything I had done was everybody else's fault. (laughs) And I was quick to point that out to everybody and anyone. And I would not take accountability. And when it started feeling worse, I would just drug more, drink more. I just got these spirits of still holding on to the rebellion. And then it was resentment. And then it was anger. And then rage and depression. And on and on and on. You dump a big gallon worth of alcohol and drugs on top of that. I lost everything and I literally lost everyone. That had to be a a dark period for certain. Yes. What about the folks around you, your friends, your family? What was their effort in this? What was their attitude in this? Concern and sorrow and helplessness was their attitude. And it seemed like the more somebody loved me, the more I was out to hurt them or distance myself from them. And so friends-wise, like one by one due to my behavior and due to my usage, they would just drop off. And some just wouldn't return phone calls or texts, and others just said, you're not welcome over here anymore. It reaches that point of self-sabotage to where you even destroy the good that is around you, the opportunities you have. I chased away all good in my life at that point. Coworkers, peers, friends, family, yeah, I destroyed it all. Did you have any desire at that time during that 19-year period? What was the level of your desire to change? Obviously, it wasn't where it needed to be or you would have a long time ago. Was that much of a thought or were you still just trying to deal with the rebellion to numb whatever was there? Well, I didn't think about it because I didn't have a problem. It was everybody else's fault. You had mentioned that earlier. Yeah. We just had a guest on here a couple of nights ago. He made it clear that the alcohol was the issue, so it was the alcohol's fault, basically, Mm -hmm. to blame it on that. Sure. Well, it's easy to blame shift. Yes, yes, and that's what his was about. I'm hearing a little of that with you. You know, you're trying to help me. I don't need that help because I'm not doing anything worthy of requiring anyone to help me. Exactly. I don't want your help because I don't need help and I don't need your opinion and I don't need your concern and I don't need you. Yes. That was my attitude. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that had to start shrinking your circle of support. It fell off to solitude, absolute solitude. So how did you start to move out of that? Is there anything else with that you're wanting to share, you know, in order to be able to help anyone who may be listening? Sure. I found my my myself in a spot where I was dead broke. I was unemployable because I had had run-ins with law enforcement. I had caught a couple felonies and some misdemeanors. Any jail time or prison time and all this? Longest time I spent in jail, and thank God for this, uh, I've only spent 24 hours. Okay, and that's minimal under the circumstances. Yes, very minimal. With my felonies, in order to avoid prison time, because I was not confident going to a jury trial, I signed a plea agreement. It was community service, anger management, fines and fees, probation, you know, the whole gamut of the diversion program. I was unbelievably grateful for that. 
Where did that take place? What county was that diversion program? It was up to Warren County. Okay. And then I had it transferred down to Delaware County. How did that play out? Were you able to walk the line that was required? I was because now I had something to fear. I had the repercussions all around me. Uh, the judge was on my neck. The prosecutor was on my neck. Probation officer was on my neck. How did you feel about that with your rebellious attitude? Had you recognized your need for that yet? Or were you still at that point of, I have no need because I've done nothing wrong? That phrase, the proof's in the pudding. Yes. And the evidence was abound. Okay. I began to kind of look around and thinking, wow, this stroke of genius is all mine. I'm responsible for all of this. And maybe uh, everybody who tried to help me, who loved me, I were absolutely right. I'm in a fix here. I'm a, you know, I consider myself always a good person. Here I am a felon. I'm on probation. I'm being drug screened. Whenever, when, whenever somebody calls, I'm, you know, at their whim. Yes. I'm accountable now to this person, my, my probation officer, who, by the way, was a wonderful person. She knew when to be tough as nails and she knew when to put the kid gloves Hooray on. for her. I'm so grateful for her. Hooray for her. Yes. That she, we need that person who doesn't just hold us accountable, but almost makes us at, accountable. And she had this way of going about it, too, to where, like, stop, boom, in my face. And it was like, whoa, okay. I Yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. And, you know, so, so little by little, uh, the pride slipped away and the humility started to come in and the sorrow and the regret started to come in. And now I'm at a point to where it's like, I have just wrecked close to three quarters of my life and my past is a a disaster zone. And I'm not sure if I can ever repair this. But you obviously came to a point where you thought you wanted to give it a try to where you realized, what do I have to lose if for no other reason? Yeah. uh, You know, I've heard people say the most dangerous individual is somebody with nothing left to lose. Yes. I was far from dangerous at that point. I was so vulnerable and broken and I was homeless and addicted and sick and hungry and scared. And there was no one else to point a finger at. There was no one to yell at. It was just me, myself, and I. Came to a point where you had to own it whether you wanted to or not. I was so owning it, yes. You couldn't see beyond what everybody else had tried to have you see in the first place. Yeah, and, you know, that's still a nagging regret I have. Is like, why didn't I get a grip on this when I was, like, late 20s, early 30s? I just didn't. But why is neither here nor there? Yeah, you can't happen. change yesterday. You can't change yesterday, and nothing happens in God's world by coincidence. I believe that with all my heart. So let's talk about how you started to come out of this. You've mentioned... You know, you didn't use these words, but obviously you got a glimmer of light, uh, whether it was through default and everything you had lost, you were in so much darkness. It didn't take a lot of light in order for it to shine through. Yeah. But you started to see and think, you know, yeah, you said it was on you, me, and myself. Absolutely. And so how did you take the steps from there to move forward in all this? Uh, it was after uh, a self-attempt on my own life, and okay. it didn't work. Can you tell us a little more about that? Here's why I sure. you know, asked you to do that. I've shared before on here, my mom was a suicide. I'm able to look back and see her despondency and depression and so many things. Obviously, I couldn't at the age of 23. So go ahead. Tell us, yeah, some sure. of the futility. 
I'll try to articulate it the best I can. Sure. I had feelings inside of myself and inside my mind. I, I just can't put a word on. I never felt these things before. I can come close. A hopeless desperation, self-failure, uh, no hope in sight, no future, uh, worthlessness. Because I'm in the cab of a pickup truck. I got nowhere to go, no one to turn to, and no one to blame. And I thought, well, I'm unemployable. I'm a convicted felon. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a terrible father. And I had a 90-day supply of uh, antidepressants. I took them all in one sitting, washed them down with a bottle of water. And I laid back and I waited to die. A 90-day supply mm-hmm. and a bottle of water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, please. So I ingested these and uh, was just wondering what death was going to be like and what my judgment was going to be like. And by the grace of God, I uh, got violently ill in the middle of that night and got up when the sun came up and realized I was still alive. And that's when I realized that, okay, I think there might be something bigger out there for me. So waking up that morning... I'm not saying or debating it was a positive in the real-life sense, but it wasn't remorse that it hadn't done you in. It was, there must be a reason I'm alive after doing all of that. That was it. That was the saving grace feeling I had was that that didn't work, and it didn't work for a reason, and I don't know that reason, but I'm still alive well, you're sharing part of that reason today by sharing your life. As you are. Did you feel like a failure after that? Or did you feel like maybe now I can accomplish something? You know, initially it was like, I can't even kill myself correctly. Can't do anything I can't right. do anything right. You know, if I can't accomplish that, you know, and then um, as the day kind of progressed, it was like, okay, you know, I'm still here. You know, what do I do? So I did something I didn't do in a very, very long time. And I had to pray. I had to ask Jesus Christ, okay, you spared me all this. I'm still alive. You're still by yourself at I'm this st- time. I'm still alone, very much by myself okay. at this point. In that truck still? Yes, yes. Okay. The right. same truck where you tried to end it, now you're turning to prayer. Yeah. Okay. And I'd always been a believer my whole life, but I always used God as a spiritual ATM. I didn't have a relationship. Yes. So, yeah, it's like, okay, uh, you have, by your grace, allowed me to live, not go to prison get through the system okay you've allowed certain things to happen to me in my life now i got no money nowhere to go nothing to do what do you want me to do god what is it you want me to do what's your will for me at this point because i got nothing you know there wasn't a thunderclap and the mountains crumbled and giant voice no, from on a high no no giant actually it was just silence it was that still small voice that the scripture speaks of yes yes Very small, very still, and to be honest, in that moment, I didn't even hear it. So from that point, I contacted a friend, asked him if I could stay over for a week or so, if I could leave my belongings in his apartment, and I began to use my cellular phone for other things than social media and entertainment. I began to uh, look up through search engines, treatment recovery places, because I knew I had a problem. So you were ready And you knew that at least needed to be one of your very next steps. Absolutely. When you are at your absolute rock bottom, you got nowhere to go but up. Yes. And I realized I couldn't climb up without some help. Yes. So for the first time in my life, I had to humble myself and ask these complete, utter strangers on the other end of my cellular phone 
with these recovery centers and halfway homes. Hey, I'm Scott. I'm an addict. Can you help me, please? You know, I'm thinking of Dr. Phil. I don't watch a lot of him, but he has a statement that kind of fits what you were talking about here a moment ago when you knew you were at a point where you could no longer handle it, he'll oftentimes say, how's that working for How's you? that working for you? Right. Yeah, and you were I able got to this. answer that. Yes, I was. say, it's not working. No, because <laughs> no. I was not a good manager of my own affairs, of my own life. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, you made that call. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Scott. I'm an addict. I need to help. Right. Go ahead with that, please. Okay. I had... Refrain from using anything for about a week. And I was going through the frustrations of finding a detox recovery place that would accept me because it seemed like the voice under the phone was, like, what kind of insurance do you have? <laughs> yep. Or could you have a copay? I just told you I'm an addict. I have nothing. You know, I have hip insurance through the state. Well, we don't accept that or that's not going to cover it. I'm going to give uh, a plug here to the House of Hope of Madison County. Awesome. Okay, I called and talked to a gentleman on the other end. and There was a small Q&A, like, when was the last time you used? You know, what was your last job? You know, how you, you know, how you doing today? And I told him that I haven't used in one week, but I had been smoking marijuana. So that's in my system for 30-some days. So if I come in and you drug test me, I'm going to pop positive for that. Everything else across the board, no matter how many panels you want to test me for, that will be negative. Uh, I went over there for an interview, and I got in, true to my word. I tested negative for everything except for THC. That had to be one of the first times you were honest with yourself, and that honesty is what got you through the door. Yes, yes. yeah. Scott, as you share this, I've got to wonder, what's some of your biggest regrets in this? And then I want to go back to the process of moving forward. What's some of your biggest regrets? Loss. Explain that, would you? Yeah, I've uh, I've lost contact with my daughter. I've lost friends. I've lost a lot of people. When you say you've lost friends, you've lost the connection, plus you've lost them to the drug or alcohol, I'm going to guess as well. That's it. I lost, uh, cause you, you know, you change, you steal, you lie, you manipulate. And, uh, ultimately you become a person you never wish you had become. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sure that it's almost innumerable in those nights of pain that yeah. you've dealt with that in your own head and heart. Yeah. Lost time, lost of opportunity, loss of love and friendships and respect. Okay, let me dig just a little deeper, if I may. You say the loss of your daughter. Is there any kind of positive relationship there at this point, Scott? I'm afraid I've, you know, I'm not afraid I've reached out. I have reached out. She's just not ready right now. And you're you're respecting that, yes? I have to. She's uh, 18 years old. She's going to graduate from high school. That's a huge transition in anybody's life, young person's life. So I think the last time I spoke to her, I said that uh, I would be here, but it was really up to her to want to yeah. you know, follow up on that. Yeah. Here's a tough one. Okay. <laughs> You're probably thinking the last couple haven't been the easiest. Hey, you keep it coming because I'm All hoping right. that this will, will, somebody will hear this and relate because it is painful, but go ahead, Randy. What's your daughter's name? Her name is Bella. Bella? Bella. Let's say Bella's listening. Mm-hmm. What would you like to say to her? 
that daddy's sorry. I'm better now. I'd love to talk to you. That kind of resist. That's, that's, that says a lot. We'll hope and pray that day comes. Oh, thank you. We'll believe that it will. And we will continue to respect Bella because I'm sure she's had her own pains from all of this. And Absolutely, struggles. she has. And, um, you know, it's not easy knowing that I'm the cause of most of that. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the loss of friends. Uh, what would you like to say to your to your friends of that time period that maybe you don't see now? But let's talk about them just okay. a little bit. Sure. How would you deal with them? What would you tell them? Uh, are they going? Do they? Do you think they'd believe the Scott of today is going to continue to make it forward, or do you think they're wondering how soon's it going to fall and fail? Uh, to answer that, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm out of their thought spectrum. They probably don't even, uh, Scott who? Yeah. Yeah. Scott who, or yeah, I remember that guy, that narcissistic, loud, obnoxious individual that know it all, you know, I thought he was the great actor, thought he was the great performer, thought he knew everything about film, television, radio, that guy. Yeah. I don't even think about that guy. Let's jump back ahead again. You were telling us how you're, how you're moving forward. Go ahead with that some more. Okay, so I'm at House of Hope, and I got my uh, AA Blue Book, and I also procured a uh, Narcotics Anonymous Blue Book. And I got 30 days in with my sponsor, 30 days of clean time, gaining weight because I'm eating again, and I'm uh, working manual labor, but I'm working. And I'm um, realizing more and more and more with the gentlemen around me and the house managers and everyone who is a peer, man, I'm not alone in this. There are others just like me whose lives have become unmanageable. I was surrounded by these guys. And we would go to uh, meetings outside of the house and I would meet men and women, different walks of life, council members and lawyers and judges and police officers, blue collar workers white-collar workers, professionals, educated, non-educated, we all had the exact same problem with different circumstances and outcomes. Our lives have become unmanageable through our compulsion, our thinking, our drug and alcohol use. And that was the first step, realizing, because I was in such solitude in my mind and my body that, you know, it's just me. Yes. I realized I'm not alone here. And when you hear these stories at the meetings, and uh, sometimes they'll have a guest speaker who will speak for the entire half hour or hour. And it just resonated with me that, man, I'm not alone. So there's some comfort there. You know, I'm not the only one who wrecked my life. You know, you share how that speaker would be there and speak for the evening. You see, out of that wreckage came some reconciliation, some hope. Some hope. A future. A future. A possible future. But absolutely that nothing is impossible. Through my higher power, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, lead us into a little more of your relationship with Christ. Okay. Uh, the title of this podcast, Faith in Your Recovery, mm -hmm. we certainly consider that a part of it, that relationship with God, with Christ, that higher power, whatever someone may use to label that. I'll take it a step further, Randy. It's everything. Awesome. Uh, Christ is everything or, or the individual's higher power because I have met with Muslims and Hindus and upon a rare occasion, even a Satanist. 
who is trying to put their life back together. The God of my understanding, my higher power, is, of course, Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. Others, though, on their journey to sobriety, need just a higher power or a God of their understanding to help because you need a spiritual something to hold on to, to take care of and help you through the things you can't do on your own. Uh, I always like to say, and I think this is maybe a catchphrase in the program, that God took me to AANA, and then NAAA turned around and took me back to God. Okay. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that picture. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that's neat. That's neat. Where are you today, Scott? Not just professionally, where are are you as far as your love of self? Where are you as far as the person you are trying to be, that one that God created you to be? Okay, I'm still really kind of trying to build and search for the man that God created me to be. But with my trust and faith in him, thank God I am, as of this week, seven months clean and sober. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I've got my mind back. I've got my uh, health back and uh, my clear thinking back. I spent 30 days at the House of Hope, and then I moved over to Bethel House, where I'm still at right now. I completed their 90-day sobriety program and graduated. If you are in good standing at there at the Bethel House, um, they don't kick you out. As long as you continue to contribute and work and pay your rent and things of that nature, you can stay as long as you need to to get back on your feet. And Michael Smith, God bless that man, and the other house manager, George Glosson, Red, shout out to Red and Mike, came to me and said, what are you doing? What are you up to? What are your plans? What you got going on? And I honestly had nothing to say. I said, well, I'm working this one job and, you know, I'm living here. And then they laid it on me. You want to come on board and be a house manager here? I thought, well, what have I done so special that that, that I deserve this opportunity, this honor of, of giving back to serve my fellow man, my fellow addict. And they said, you didn't do anything special. You're just you. You're good with computers. You worked a great program. You're a positive influence here. We want you on board. Here's our few privileges and here's what we want you to do. What What is a house manager? What's a house manager do? A house manager will, if there's a client wanting to come in to Bethel House, they have to pass a 16-panel drug screen in an interview process. And if they pass their test, do a good interview, and then you can tell if somebody's legit, honest enough, they want the help to get sure. clean and sober. You bring them on, and you find them a bed in the house, and um, you introduce them to the faith-based 12-step program of recovery. I have been through 1 through 12 and I'm looping back 9 through 12, and the rest of them I, I look at and think, what do I need to do to apply this in my day-to-day, and I apply it. But we're there for the men as, as counselors, as sometimes disciplinarians, try to network and resource for them to get to meetings, go to meetings. We demand one meeting a day at least, either Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. We try to help them find some gainful employment through some temporary agencies here or some people we know. And encourage them. Go to these meetings. Get references for a job. Get yourself uh, acquainted with uh, this person. They can get you placed in employment. They can get you, you know, a hand up, not a handout. I mean, we're there for them, but they earn it. That's what it's got to be. There again, it's that ownership thing. It is. Uh, Whether we're hunting for help or we're in the middle of help. Uh, 
Let's start to wrap this up here, Scott. Sure, sure. As I shared a little bit ago, the title of our podcast, Faith in Your Recovery, what does that mean to you, that title? In your words, how would you explain it? It means everything. Faith, as a mustard seed, can move mountains. You must have faith not only in your higher power, your God. You must also find that faith in yourself Yes. to work in tandem. And faith in others, others rather, to learn to trust again and listen. Stop talking and listen. That's such a big part of it, isn't it? It We're is. We're always ready to respond even before the question's asked. Oh, absolutely. But to be able to listen, to hear it out, and to follow through, yes, that is powerful. Scott, is there anything you'd like to close with? Anything you'd like to say to anybody? Any kind of way you want to offer last words of hope? Yeah, to anybody and everybody out there who's who's listening in on, on Randy's show, Faith in Recovery, it is never too late. You can start again. Don't guilt yourself. Don't beat yourself up. It's there if you want it, and God will show you the way if you're sincere. And all you've got to do then is take those steps. He'll shine the light. It says there in the book of Psalms that he's a, you know, a light into our path and uh, a lamp into our feet. It may be the other way around. Right. But either way, it, it means one step at a time. Well, and uh, That light's not uh, 14 feet ahead of you. It's at your next step. Yes. It is a marathon, not a sprint race. Absolutely. It's not going to happen the first week. You know, all these good old colloquials and good old standard <laughs> statements are still true. And yes. they still ring as fact. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, listen, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us here on Faith in Your Recovery. Folks, thank you, too, for listening in. We don't believe you've come this far to only come this far. Your answer, your healing, your recovery may be just around the corner, maybe in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Stay in the battle. God bless.